Welcome to this episode of Bob Cooney's VR Deep Dive Podcast. In this series, Bob connects you with some of the leading innovators and thinkers in location-based VR. What do you think? How much gameplay needs to be an educational experience for arcades to get schools into arcades? So good question, Olaf. I think that, you know, look, I don't think it has to be gamified. I think what Joe was about to say is that VR, video games are about capturing and maintaining your attention. And that's what these core loops are. We talk to them. We, we, we talk about compulsion loops, right? So if you go back and you remember the early days of, um, it was a game by Capcom called Monster Hunter, where you would collect weapons and those weapons would, you put them together into new weapons and then those would allow you to defeat stronger monsters. And so it had this compulsion or core loop that would force you to play to progress. And then things like Farmville and uh, Farmville happened, right? Where, you know, you had this really, really intense core loop that, you know, you had to build your farm and then you had to wait in order for the things to grow. So you could harvest them into more resources to be able to grow in the game. And what you could do is you could buy your way forward in the game. And so those games are there because the games themselves aren't really very immersive, but VR by its nature is wildly immersive. And so I don't know how, how much gameplay or compulsion loop needs to be into VR experiences, and especially for education. I think the fact that it's you've got their attention. The biggest So I've done some work with Steve Grubbs, who runs a company called Victory XR. I'm a big fan of them. And they did the Frog Dissection app in VR, which is one of the top selling educational apps and, and won tons of awards. And when I talked to him about the market, what he said is the number one problem for educators is engaging the unengageable. How do you engage students that are tuned out? Because our teaching methods go back to the industrial age, right? And so, you know, VR engages them, AR engages them. Then once they're engaged, they'll learn. And so I don't think it needs to be gamified. I think it just needs to be interesting and compelling. And I think the bar is really low in VR. I think you put on a VR headset the phone's gone, the window's gone, like the pretty girl sitting next to me that I want to pass notes to is gone. All of those distractions are tuned out. And I think that that's the power of VR from an educational standpoint. Now, as far as getting them into the arcade, I don't think you should be calling it an arcade. So Bill Tustin from Center Tech, I think is the my kind of picture child of, of who's doing the best job of getting schools to come into his facility. And he calls it Center Tech. And it's a technology center. It's not an arcade because no school group is going to bring their kids to an arcade. Right? I mean, can you imagine the, the permission slip that gets sent back at home? Is I need 20 bucks to take your kid to a video arcade? Like parents can be like, what the fuck? And so I think, you know, making sure that you're positioned your facility as something other than an arcade is actually critical. And then there's a ton of content out there that's not games. You Like just put them in Google Earth. Let them paint. There's a million things that are available as far as opportunities for entertainment in VR. So Andre says, so far, the EDU VR stuff is not cooperative, which is a big issue, according to my opinion. Yeah, really interesting. I don't like I'd be curious, Andre, why you think that's an issue or why you're hearing that that's an issue, because I think in school, generally, there's not a lot of cooperative learning. Right. I think that, you know, if anything, it's competitive. It's who's got the right answer. Oh, I do. Right. And there's and even like my kids are. My oldest daughter's in, in school, but it hasn't been so long since they were in high school. And she used to get really frustrated with the fact that she'd be forced to do projects 
cooperatively and she'd have to carry the other students because they wouldn't actually do the work. And so I know you're talking about in schools, but I think the fact that does it have to be cooperative in an arcade or in a VR center? And I'm starting to come around with this kind of virtual reality or virtual experience center, this notion of experiences instead of games. And from a branding standpoint, I like that term better. And how do you get those people into your facility? I don't know that the experiences have to be cooperative. I think if you position the experience properly, I don't know why that would be a challenge. So Mike Oakes says, we developed a fire extinguisher training app at the show. Kids are wanting to keep going over and over again. So a fire extinguisher training app, there's a great example of something that you could do in VR, right? And I actually know somebody in Sacramento that's taken their arcade and turned it into a training center for fire captains. And they've built this training system where fire captains come in and give orders in a virtual fire, right? And they're bringing people into the arcades to do that. And then they're also taking that out to fire stations. So you guys know, if you listen to me at all, you have to have multiple pillars of your business and education and training are the two biggest ones. Look, I, and I agree with you, Andre. I think having more edutainment experiences, but they're there. You just got to go look for them. A lot of them are out there on Cardboard and, and Oculus Go. So I wouldn't be too stuck on the content that's on Springboard. And I know Springboard, by the way, is really pushing into education. And so if you're interested in that, you should talk to those guys because they're pulling education content. And I think that's the next big pillar for those guys. Um, and they're running some beta tests around education content. So I would, uh, I would take a look at that. By the way, Andre, if, Olaf, if you're not following my blog, I'm going to drop this in here too. So I've been writing about the different types of consumer contexts in different types of locations. And one of them is around, you can see it at the bottom, aquarium zoos and science centers. And read that because there's a lot going on there. And I think the next one I'm going to write is about the context of the consumer. This one is about like how do they repurpose some of their physical facilities. And then the next one is the context of the consumer in these types of locations. And so I think that there's a massive opportunity regarding those types of, you know, science centers. And uh, here we go. It looks like Joe's coming back. So let's hope he has his tech stuff figured out. But so Aaron says, spoke with, is that Aaron? Is that Aaron Polka? I'm not sure. Spoke with themed entertainment designer Iapa who did fire training, not in VR, but motion platforms. Yeah, that's a big one. Joe's back. Hey, how's it going? Hey, that's all right. The community has been keeping me busy by asking questions. <laughs> We've been talking about educational experiences and stuff. So okay. I'm glad you uh, I'm glad you're back because I was running out of things to say. <laughs> Sorry about that. And so one last question. So how much would I charge for a, a team building experience using VR? If you're selling it to like a sales team, um, I actually talked about this in a webinar a couple of weeks ago where, or it might've been on my Facebook group. We had a thread about how to do team building in VR arcades with multiplayer. And if you're not in the Facebook group, you should join, but there's definitely a Facebook. We used to do it. I'll tell you what I did at Zero Latency. We had this um, game called Zombie Outbreak or Zombie Survival. And it was a six player game. And it was actually really simple, but you had different places to go. And, and I we would let a team of six go in and play 15 minutes. We would come back and in a whiteboard, we would say, okay, what did you do wrong? Because they knew nothing. We would give them no briefing. We would let them figure it out. And they would self-organize a little bit. And then they would come back in and they would say, okay, we're going to go back in for a second round. What do we want to do differently? And you'd see leadership emerge. They would self-organize. They would sign roles. They would understand those roles. We would create communication protocols. Then they would go back in the game and their score would triple. 
right? And it was just a really, really hands-on, powerful example that they would learn themselves of communication, leadership, self-organization, like how all roles and responsibilities, teamwork, all of that stuff would just appear out of a fucking 15-minute zombie game. And so, you know, what could you charge for that? I could charge $1,000 for that. I could. I don't know if you can, but I could. And so like that comes into positioning and making sure your language is right and you're understanding the value of what you're delivering and who you're selling to. And that's a whole different conversation. But yeah, we could talk about that offline. Joe, come welcome back. What were we talking about? I was just about to get into what's going on with VR games and design. Yeah, yeah. Current trends. So uh, yeah, so I was just saying that like people are starting to realize they're starting to respect VR as its own platform. Because one of the early things that I've seen, and I'm still seeing it now, is that people just put a video game into VR, and they think it's the same thing. And the thing is, uh, video games are designed to be super engaging and create tension and to get your attention. And VR on its own is already engaging. It's, it's very immersive. And so when you put two things that are very engaging next to each other, one of them is going to lose out. And what ends up happening is that the video game aspect of the experience becomes so engaging that you forget you're in VR and you might as well not be in VR. And so one of the first things you do when you design a game is you say, is this the right platform for the game? And VR has a lot of strengths already. It's very immersive. And so instead of making something that's also more engaging and immersive on top of the VR, you work with what VR has. For example, um, I was the lead interaction designer for Jurassic World's VR expedition at, at David Musters. And one thing, my my goal there, once once I figured out what was what they were trying to develop, was that I didn't want the interactions to get in the way of the cinematic experience mm. because it could have very easily turned into just a game. Yeah, and there was a follow up game on that same vehicle. Uh, it's called like Dragon Frost or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that one was very much a game game. And when you play it it's very hard to understand what's going on and you forget that you're in VR because you're so focused on trying to shoot all these targets. And it's really interesting. When I watched people play some of the early zero latency games, the gameplay was so intense that people would want to go in and just like, wow, this is amazing, right? And mm -hmm. so, you know, the thing that became apparent is the company was spending all of this money building this amazing environment that nobody yeah. ever got to see because they were getting shot by robots in their face like every 10 seconds. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Really interesting comment. Yeah. And the funny thing is like I did a haunted, uh, it's called Ghost Manor. So it's like a haunted VR walkthrough wireless. And there's a bunch of scares in different rooms and people really liked it. But the one thing I didn't see coming was that we have a, a graveyard outdoor scene. And when people got in there, they just sat there and they looked around. Yeah. And that was like, <laughs> that was like a really cool moment for them. And it wasn't intended to be like a cool moment. It was supposed to be scary, but like, so it's, so it's like, so I think a lot of developers, they overlook the part that VR is on its own, very immersive and they're not building towards, they're not leaning on that. And it just because you have interactions doesn't mean it has to be like a video game. Like one idea I had was having like a headlamp on your head that you never see. And then when you look around your, your lamp shines on everything. And if you have like a velociraptor or a zombie or whatever, when it shines on them, they turn around and they see you. And so that you're you're doubling down on the immersiveness and it's an interaction, but it's not necessarily a video game. So I think respecting VR as its own platform is is one thing that I think people are starting to do a little more, but that's something that I think should be done a lot more. So let's talk about replayability because that's a big theme in location-based VR because 
oftentimes these things are going into locations where, you know, like FECs, for example, average 3.5 visits a year by someone. And so going in and having a, an anchor attraction, because VR tends to be more expensive, that mm-hmm. maybe you play it once, you walk through and you're done and it's it's not different the second time. Like, uh-huh. how do you balance that experience versus gameplay that actually drives replayability in VR? How do you deal with that? Well, there's a lot of cool things you can do with, because you can, you know, use like game techniques where the original idea for the haunted experience was that each room was modular. So when you walk through it again, it was a music room. And then the second time it's a graveyard and a third time. So you could have it just keep changing every time you go through unlimited times almost. And so you don't necessarily have to re- have replayability getting a high score. Um, you could have it because the experience changes every time. And the cool thing about the, the ghost matter was that we got a lot of people coming through a second time because it scared them so much. And a lot of, not a lot of people, but there was like a good 10, 15% of people would finish that experience in like a minute and a half, which is like well below the, the five minute standard that's around. Yeah. And so, so I, I always like to say that like value doesn't equal time, value equals experience. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like we've all done like, like skydiving simulators, for example, right? They charge, I don't know what they charge, a hundred bucks. And you're actually you're actually in the simulator for 120 seconds, right? Oh, wow. That's it. Like, so you want to talk about dollar per minute of actual experience? It's really short. The price is really high, but it's freaking amazing, and people do it. And so, yeah, I think yeah. I think we're way too hung up on time in this industry, and that's something I'd love to I'd love to shake people out of. So when you do something like like the haunted house, and you talk about like you know shining a lamp around, I think one of the things that says to me is you need to build more depth. So I think what most developers' reaction to that would be is I'll build four games, right? <laughs> and then when they come back, I'll have four. The, every three months, they have a different game. And I think what you're saying is build a game with enough depth to where mm-hmm. they come back, they actually have a different experience every time. And I yeah. actually kind of believe that that's cheaper than building four games, isn't it? Yeah. If you design it that way from the beginning, yeah, yeah, you're just essentially swapping out assets. And if you advertise it as it's a different experience every time, then it would be cheaper than trying to create a new art style with new lore and new branding and all this other stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think that was the tactic that minority media took with Chaos Jump. They built like one game that had 17 different worlds, but you only get three of them in any instance and it's randomly generated, right? And so, mm-hmm. um, and I still haven't seen them all. In fact, I, I was kind of calling bullshit on them because every time I play, I seem to get the same three, but um, yeah. they swear to me it's there. And I know other people would have seen them. <laughs> but um, yeah, no, I think that's a great idea is like, yeah, so all I was talking about high scores and and so what about scoring and leaderboards and and things like that? How does that play into you know, games versus experience. I know the Void tried to do this with their Wreck-It Ralph is they tried to gamify that a little bit. And I don't feel, I, my personal opinion was they didn't do a very good job of it. What's your opinion of, of the gamification of these things and leaderboards and how that plays in? I think basically what leaderboards are is just social proof. And social proof is a really good way to retain users and to get the message out. But I feel like what happens is a lot of people they use the scoring mechanism and then that that's the primary reason for the game to exist. And I think that's where the mistake is, is it's fine to have social proof. It's really good because then it's, it's good like viral marketing and stuff like that. And it's good to want to have your name up in the lights for everyone to see, but 
it shouldn't be the purpose of going in there because then you're just playing a video game. <laughs> like <laughs> you don't need VR at that point. 30, so thirty-five dollar video game. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so doing something that that works in VR, that works with the experience, that works with the the immersiveness of it, that also gives social proof some way. I think that's the real design where the design thought should be. That's where the design intention should be. And so there's a big narrative right now around too many shooting games in VR. And I don't necessarily buy into that narrative because I think if you look at, you know, if you look at where the money is in both movies and games, it's around shooting, right? I mean, action adventure is the top genre in both areas. So what's your thinking around shooting games and why are they popular? And and should we be intentionally avoiding them in the game development world for VR? I think if you don't have a strong vision and a strong idea for an experience, then like, I don't think you should move away from things that work unless you have like a strong vision. The thing is like shooting works, everyone gets it. It's about skill, it's about aiming, it's about timing. So it has like a lot of stuff bunched in and then all the consumers understand what it is when they see it. The problem is you, you probably are cutting out a section of the market, like my grandma and my parents aren't going to play that game. I'm not a big fan of shooters because I played so many, you know, by the time I was 15 or, <laughs> you know, I don't want any more shooters, but they work, you know, it's easy to understand. People get it. People know what they're in for, but I prefer stuff that's a lot more unique, you know, and I think just being able to, the hardest part is getting the first step of making something fun is making it resonate. And when something is a shooter, it right away resonates with a certain crowd. And so the skill is being able to for somebody to see a poster or a, or a video for a VR experience and then to know exactly what the gameplay is like, that's not a shooter, you know? And so I'm not a fan of shooters personally, but, but they, I mean, they, they resonate with a certain crowd. That's the end of part two of this interview. Part three is up next.